We'll turn with me to Matthew 7, and we're looking at verses 7 to 12. We're almost done, but not quite. But I want to do some review uh, with it. Uh, so uh, let's first just go back. And we said last week that in this passage, Jesus gives us three reasons for obeying the command to love others as ourselves that is found there in verse 12. Uh, but they're, they're God's promise demands it, God's pattern demands it, and God's purpose demands it. So we started with the last one. Look at verses 7 and 8 again. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. And here we find one of the Lord's greatest, most comprehensive promises to those who belong to him, who, those who are his children. He promises that whatever we ask and seek and knock for, we're going to receive. And that opens us up, that frees us to, to bestow anything and everything we have on those who have needs. We can do for others what we would do for ourselves without fear of having nothing left because all we have to do is turn to our loving Father who gives us, provides for our needs every day takes care of us in every way. We'll never do without that which we need. But we looked at this passage specifically, and uh, we, we jumped back a little bit. And we said in, in verses 1 through 5, the negative principle of human relations is what? In 1 through 5. Do not judge. Do not judge. Don't be a condescending, arrogant critic of others. So does that mean that we're not supposed to reprove or rebuke someone who's in sin, a brother who's in sin? No. Does it mean we're not supposed to discriminate and discern false prophets and false teachers, apostates? No. Uh, so if we don't judge others, how are we supposed to know about the sin in our brother's eye? We've got to be discriminating. How do we discern the sin in a believer's heart? How do we know an apostate? Well, the answer is verse 7. Ask and it'll be given to you. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and it'll be open to you. Uh, James 1.5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives all generously without reproach. It'll be given to him. God's wisdom is among our greatest needs. We can't be discerning and discriminating without divine counsel from our Heavenly Father. And the primary means for achieving such wisdom is petitioning prayer. Uh, he has given us his inerrant word, uh, and so... We go to the Word, and we find that He spelled out a lot of things very specifically for us. But then other things, He gives us principles that we have to draw out. And once we know the principle, then we have to depend upon His wisdom. And the only way we determine how to apply those principles in specific situations is to be continually talking to Him in prayer. And so we have to ask and seek and knock, and He reveals the answers to us. Now, so contrary to popular interpretations... Verses 7 and 8 is not a blank check for someone to present to God for his endorsement. There are people who rip this, these verses out of their context, and they say, well, all you got to do is ask. And, but there's some other conditions that we talked about last week that you've got to understand that apply. The first is the statement's only valid if you're a child of God. Uh, otherwise, you have no relationship to him. He's not bound to answer you. Second, you must be living in obedience. Uh, John says in 1 John 3, 22, whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. And then third, we said you have to be a selfless child of God. You have to have a totally selfless motive in asking. James 4, 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. And then fourth, we said you have to be a submissive child of God. John 5, 14 and 15, this is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And we, if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we've asked from him. So what's the will of God? He said, in everything, no matter what it is, that we do it all to what? To the glory of God. That's right. So it's not a blank check. It's only when the conditions are right. 
You're his child. You're his obedient child. You're his selfless child. You ask according to his will and you do it in order that he can be glorified. Uh, there's something else here, and that's that these three verbs we saw. Anybody remember what we said about those three verbs? Ask, seek, and knock? It spells the word. Pardon? It spells the word. <laughs> it more than ask. <laughs> yeah, it spells more than ask. Yeah, that was Richard's contribution, I believe. Uh, it, they're all present active imperatives. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking keep on continually knocking he's commanding perseverance and constancy why does god want us to persevere not because we have to bang away in order to get god to act but because the more we're involved in the process the greater our relationship with him becomes he wants us to have a vital relationship with him and so there's much more to interpret here i, I want to remind you don't twist this passage and to fit your agenda remember the context I read to you a quote from Donald Carson uh, that, about how we need to remember to put these verses in their context. Uh, let me read it again. I think it's so good. He says, The kingdom of heaven requires poverty of spirit, purity of heart, truth, compassion, a non-retaliatory spirit, a life of integrity, and we lack all of these things. Then let us ask for them. Are you as holy, as meek, as truthful, as loving, as pure, as obedient to God as you would like to be? Then ask him for grace that these virtues may multiply in your life. Such asking, when sincere and humble, is already a step of repentance and faith, for his acknowledgement that the virtues the kingdom requires you do not possess, and that these same virtues only God can give. Moreover, I suspect that this asking, seeking, and knocking has a total package as its proper object. It does not seek holiness but spurn obedience. It does not seek obedience but hedge when it comes to purity, it is a wholehearted pursuit of the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and this pursuit is stamped by stamina. It is a persistent asking, seeking, and knocking, end quote. And so I asked the question, does Dr. Carson mean that we can never pray for the more mundane things in life, such as, you know, a job, a car, uh, financial provision when it's needed, no, most certainly not. But we must not forget that when Jesus gave this instruction, it fit into a certain context. And we must use that context when we interpret the text. The next principle that Jesus gives in the passage is that God's pattern demands it. Let's read again, verses 9 to 11. Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give what is good to those who ask him? We talked about how they made loaves of bread that were small things like biscuits. When they finished cooking it, it would look like one of the smooth limestone rocks that are common in Israel. So Jesus' question is, what kind of father would deceive his own son by giving him a stone rather than a loaf of bread? And the obvious answer is no loving father would do that. Uh, verse 10, he says, he's, he's not, if he asks for a fish, he's not giving him a snake. And we talked about that that has to do with clean and unclean foods. Under the law, a fish was a clean animal, but a snake or an eel that looks like a snake were unclean animals. And they could not be eaten. And so, But the cooked flesh of both, all look, of all those things, looks the same. And so Jesus' point here is that if a son asks for fish to eat, would a loving father cook a snake or an eel and give that to him and then purposely violate, cause his son to violate the law of God? He, he would not defile his son in that way. A loving father wouldn't do that. And we mentioned how over in Luke's account, Jesus asked another question. If he's asked for an egg, will he, he'll not give him a scorpion, will he? And and I'm not going into all the details we discussed about that, but the point is that a loving father won't deceive his son. He won't defile his son. And here in Luke, he's not going to do something which could destroy his son. Um, so uh, then we came to verse 11, and Jesus makes one of those great, greatest statements in the entire Bible on the fallen nature of man. He says, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him. 
Notice that you're evil even though you do good things for your your children, like giving them good gifts, basic things. Uh, so if you, having an evil, vile, fallen, corrupt, sinful nature, do that out of a sense of parental love, how much more will your heavenly Father, who is perfect goodness, perfect love, perfect kindness, give things to those who ask him? Uh, so the point is simply that if, if evil people can give their kids the basics of life, don't you think God is going to do that for his children? Uh, don't you think you can trust him? God's not like other deities. He truly cares for those who are his children. Um, those who do not know the true God have no divine resources to whom they can turn for assurance and trust. Uh, and finally, now is where we stopped last week. We come to the last point, and that is that God's purpose demands it. Uh, look at verse 12. In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. And the key is that we are to do as we would have them do. It doesn't necessarily mean they did or they will. Uh, in fact, we may know that they won't. Uh, but that doesn't change what we should do. Uh, love doesn't judge and love doesn't criticize. And love also reaches out and does to others what it would wish to be done to itself, even though it may know it never will. Now, this truth is really limited to the Bible. Uh, this is the golden rule that was established by Jesus. Now, I've heard it said many times, well, other religions have a similar rule, so Jesus didn't invent this. Yes, he did. <laughs> you see, other human religions and human philosophies have come up with a negative concept along this line, but they were never able to turn the corner to the positive. The negative form of this rule is known to many religions. That is, it often appears elsewhere in the form that goes like this. Do not do anything to anyone that you would not want him to do to you. Uh, for example, Rabbi Hillel taught, what is hateful to you, do not do to your fellow creatures. This, that is the whole law, all else is explanation, end quote. Uh, so it's a don't principle. Uh, it's a withholding or a refraining from doing it. Uh, in the book of Tobit, it says, What thou thyself hatest to no man do. Uh, the Septuagint scholars of Alexandria who put together the Greek Old Testament in a letter to Aristius uh, said this, quote, As you wish that no evil befall you, but to be a partaker of all good things, so you should act on the same principle towards your subjects and offenders, end quote. In other words, you don't want any evil on you, so don't do any evil to anyone else. Again, it's a don't do principle. Uh, it's negative. Uh, you go to ancient China, and you'll find that Confucius taught, what you do not want done to you yourself, do not do to others. Uh, Every one of those so far is a negative don't do thing. It's a withholding, a refraining. Among the Greeks, there was a particular king by the name of uh, Nicocles who once said, do not do to others the things which make you angry when you experience them at the hands of other people. Again, it's a don't do. Uh, the Greek Stoic philosopher Epictetus uh, said, what you avoid suffering yourself, don't inflict on others. So the whole world knows how to not do. They just don't know how to do. Uh, I mean, we can all withhold what is evil. Uh, so in a negative form, it's a very common principle. And you find it in all kinds of systems of theology and religion and ethics. But left alone as a negative, it's really a weak principle. Why? because it's basically a revelation of the selfishness of man. If you want to know how to define man at his basic root, you can do it with one word, selfish. That's it. Man is utterly, totally, hopelessly dominated by self. And because of that, he can come up with a principle which says, don't do such and such to someone else because 
If you do, they might do it to you. Uh, you know, you get mad at the guy and you say to yourself, I'd like to deck that guy. You're not restrained out of love. Most of the time you're restrained because you figure that guy might be able to whip you. Uh, we all have that kind of tendency to be self-seeking. And so this becomes a sort of utilitarian, humanistic, self-serving, negative principle. We don't do certain things out of fear. That's egoism. Uh, it's the protection of self, the fear of retaliation by the other person. It's selfishness and self-preservation. It knows nothing of selfless love. Selfless love is able to do and do and do for others what it wishes were done to it, even though it never knows, even though it knows that it will never be that way. Uh, people say, Honesty is the best policy. And they say that because they don't want to get caught in a lie. Not because they really believe that. Uh, it's it's self-seeking. It's just common sense protection. It's like saying, don't play with fire. Why? You'll get burned. Protect self. It's refraining from doing, refraining from saying. It, you, you don't need any faith in God for that. You don't need salvation for that. You can do that on your own. But the positive aspect, as Jesus stated it, is utterly impossible. To assume in your own heart what you would want the very most and then do that for someone else is beyond the ability of the unregenerate person. It, isn't, it just isn't going to happen. Why? Because apart from God's divine work of salvation and sanctification in their heart, the Bible says in 2 Timothy 3, 2 and 3, that men are lovers of self, arrogant, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, without self-control, brutal, haters of good. And in Titus 3, 3, Paul told Titus that Unbelievers spend their lives in malice and envy, hating, hateful, hating one another. Now, when you see humanity as defined that way, as God defines them, you got a real problem. They love themselves and they hate people who do good. That kind of person is not going to go around doing good to others. Now, I don't deny that every so often... Unbelievers do some good deeds on behalf of others, but generally it's not the pattern of their lives. It's like the blind squirrel that occasionally finds an acorn. You know, it's, it will never be a conscious, purely motivated, free-giving pattern of life. Why? Because they're selfish. They don't do the good things they do for God's glory, but for their own glory. They are seeking after a claim for themselves. And in many of their minds, they're earning brownie points with God. It's the whole thing of doing good works in order to merit salvation or to earn God's blessing. It may appear on the surface to be self-sacrificing, but ultimately, deep down, there's a self-seeking goal, even in martyrdom for a cause. The, the goal may be to gain the attention of your peers, to gain a reputation, to make a name for yourself in society, to have a martyr's complex, to go down in history or whatever else. But free, total, selfless, sacrificial giving to someone else, what you would want for yourself, <coughs> that's unknown to the world. Everyone seeks his own. That's why Romans 3.12 says there's none that does good, there's not even one. And that clause was put there because someone would have said, comma, except me. So the Lord said, no, not even you, not, no one. I'll never forget many years ago when we were planning to build the gymnasium here at the school, we had a wealthy man come to us and offer to give us all the money we needed to build it if we would name the building after him. 
I was the chairman of the elders at the time, and I was shocked that he made that offer to us. And so I told him we would be happy to put up a sign that said, for the glory of God, but we weren't going to name the building after him. Uh, so he didn't give us the money. And the Lord provided it to us by the smaller gifts of his people who were motivated by love for the Lord rather than love of personal recognition. Anyway, the negative side of this principle is nothing more than a means of self-protection. Don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. Uh, and it's the best the world can come up with. But it's self-centered at its core. But Jesus gives the positive form of this rule. And the difference between these two forms is profound. The negative ethic is compelled by fear. The positive ethic is compelled by love. The fear is common to man because he's dominated by self-preservation. Love comes only from God. You know, most of us drive our cars carefully, at least most of the time. And we drive at or close to the speed limit, not always because of love for the law, but rather usually out of fear that if we break it, we'll get caught, right? And, and when we drive down the street, we do our best to avoid crashing into pedestrians and bicyclists. Why? Because we don't want to hurt people and we don't want to get sued for crashing into and injuring someone. And so in a very re real sense, you drive out of fear, particularly in this area. Um, but on the other hand, when a family member or a close friend needs a ride somewhere and you offer to give them that ride, it's because you love and care for them. Out of love, you do that which you would desire they would do for you. You see the difference there? The second situation is motivated by love. The first one by fear. The lost world can restrain itself from doing certain things because of fear, but it will not find the power to do other things that come from the heart, which is motivated by pure goodness, because it doesn't have the love of God poured out within its heart by the Holy Spirit. That's what characterizes believers, according to Romans 5.5. 5. And that demands the knowledge of God. You see, this golden rule is motivated by love. It teaches that if you enjoy being loved, love others. If you like to receive things, give to others. If you like being appreciate, appreciated, appreciate others. But don't do it expecting them to do anything for you in return. They may not show any appreciation for what you've done for them. Remember, Jesus healed and fed thousands of people during his lifetime. And he was the epitome of this golden rule in action. And in the end, what happened? They turned on him and crucified him. Isaiah says he was despised and forsaken of men. So then... The positive form is far more searching than its negative counterpart. And notice that Jesus does not give us permission to withdraw into a world where we offend no one but accomplish no positive good either. We are to engage the world with the love and kindness of Jesus Christ. What would you like done to you? What would you really like then do that for others. Duplicate both the quality of these things and their quantity, he says, in everything. Let me show you an example of how this works. In Philippians 2, 19 and 20, Paul says, But I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. Now, why is he sending Timothy? Why not someone else? Verse 20, for I have no one else of kindred spirit who will, be, who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare, for they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. Paul says, I'm sending Timothy because all of the other guys are still motivated by fear and self-preservation. They haven't yet reached the point in their sanctification, that they are motivated by such a deep 
sense of love for the welfare of others that they would sacrifice themselves on the behalf of others. But Timothy has. Folks, <coughs> that attitude of self-centered self-preservation is basic to human nature, and only Christ can change it. It ta even takes time in the lives of believers <coughs> to change as they are sanctified by the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. When you read verse 21, for they all seek after their own interest, don't think that that means that they were uncaring, selfish men who didn't really care about the things of Christ. doesn't mean that at all. No, remember, remember who Paul's traveling companions were at different times in his ministry. Luke, Aristarchus, Epaphras, others. And in the last chapter of Philippians, he says, the brethren who are with me greet you. That's the same book that he made that statement. I have no one else other than Timothy who will be as concerned for your needs. In the same book, he ends it by saying, the brethren who are with me greet you. So they were all believers but they had not yet reached the point in their sanctification where their self-centered fears for their personal safety had been completely overcome by such a love for others that they were willing to sacrifice all for others, no matter the cost of them. So the dynamic for, for, for fulfilling this ethic has to come from outside of our fallen nature. It has to come when the indwelling spirit is planted within us What's the very first fruit of the Spirit listed for us in Galatians 5? Love. Man, utterly, selfishly, hopelessly trapped in his sin, cannot express that ethic. But we as Christians can and we must. If the life of God pulses in the soul of a man or a woman and the love of God abides in us and is poured out in our hearts, if the, if the fruit of the Spirit is love and Jesus' command in John 15, 12 is love one another just as I have loved you, then we'd better respond to that. And what it simply means is that you determine in your own heart what you would want for you and then you do it for someone else. You say, well, I have some needs. I need this and I need that. Well, if you know someone else who needs them too, then do it for them, not you. Do to them what you would normally do for you. That's utterly foreign to an unregenerate mind. They don't know the meaning of self-sacrifice in this manner. That just doesn't happen because man is utterly self-seeking. Now notice what Jesus says at the end of verse 12. Why are we to act this way? Jesus doesn't say that we are to do to others what we would like them to do to us in order that they will do it to us. There's no utilitarian ethic here such as honesty pays or the like. Rather, the reason we are to do to others what we would like others to do to us is because he says what? This is the law and the prophets. That is, it sums up the law and the prophets. In other words, when we act like this, our behavior conforms to the requirements of the kingdom of God, which are laid out in the scriptures. How is that so? Well, Jesus is using the golden rule to sum up everything he taught about the true meaning of the law and the prophets, starting back in chapter 5, verse 21, and moving up to that point. In fact, there, are ten, there were 10 different matters that he dealt with from chapter 5, verse 21, through chapter 6, verse 11. And you could almost construe them as sort of a 10 commandments, all, all of which are summed up in this one statement. Bible scholar David Turner lays them out for us. Let me, let me go through these for you. Number one, you will not commit verbal murder. You'll make reconciliation with fellow disciples your first religious priority. Number two, you will not commit mental adultery. 
you'll deal decisively with your sinful thoughts. Three, you will not divorce except when infidelity has occurred. You'll make every effort to remain with your spouse. Number four, you'll not make vows. You'll always tell the truth. Number five, you'll not seek personal retribution. You'll be generous to those who injure you. Number six, you'll not hate your enemies. You'll love and pray for your persecutors. Number seven, you'll not perform religious duties to gain temporary human approval. You'll perform your religious duties only to gain eternal divine reward. Number eight, you'll not be anxious over things. You'll be exclusively loyal to God's kingdom and his righteous standards. Number nine, you'll not be judgmental or naive in your estimation of human beings. You'll, you'll examine your own life before making judgments about others. And finally, number 10, you'll not avoid prayer because you doubt God's goodness. You'll believe that God is good and rest in his answers to your prayer. So there they are, the law and the prophets, all summed up <clears throat> in that one statement, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. With that summarizing statement, the Sermon on the Mount's main body has concluded. Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And he requires that his disciples do no less. The summation of the law as loving one's neighbor or doing for others whatever they would like done to him is therefore not a high, it's not a higher law that replaces the Torah, but it's the true goal of the law. The Apostle Paul makes a similar statement in Romans 13, 8 and 9. He says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there's any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said the same thing over in Galatians 5.14. For the whole law is summed up in one word in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the golden rule, folks, is just another way to say, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Just another way to say it. And Jesus sums up everything he taught in this sermon in that one concluding statement. But it's a statement that only those who are a part of his kingdom can do because it requires the presence of the indwelling, sanctifying spirit of God to enable us to do it. And we fulfill it when we obey from hearts that are motivated by love for others and not fear or selfish motives to protect ourselves from harm. Well, this is really the end of the main body of Jesus' sermon. What follows to the end of the chapter are solemn warnings on the necessity of obedience to his teachings. Uh, these warnings are a part of the sermon, but they serve as the conclusion or the epilogue to the main body of the sermon. So that's where we'll move into next. But before we do that, let me bust pause and ask if there are any questions or comments on what we just talked about there as we concluded that last point. Yes, sir. Don't the negative, all these negative commandments, you know, to not do anything that I wouldn't want somebody to do to me, fall under the commandment of Jesus to do unto others. Uh, and however, if I avoid doing anything negative, I am not doing the things that are positive that are commanded by Christ. So I can become a monk somewhere, and or Robinson Crusoe on my own little island, mm -hmm. and it would be impossible for me to do to someone else something right. negative. Right. You're exactly. I to do something positive. You're, you're, that's why I said Jesus doesn't say, "Go be a monk, go refrain, set up your own little place where you don't have to." offend anybody and you can just do what you want to do. You 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 can't he didn't call us to a hermit lifestyle. There's a limit to and, these uh, negative things. Right. In other words, if he asked me to put a make a list, I could make a list of everything I don't want people to do. Mhm. Mm but I cannot make a list of everything I should do positively to other people. That list is absolutely And endless. plus you got to face the fact that <clears throat> when you you're called to do those things for others, positively without any expectation that they will do them in return. 
or that they will even appreciate what you have done for them. Right. You still have are to do them. Well, and that's really so, motive. Yeah. Motive to do this. Yeah. Not to get something. Yep. I pay somebody. You know, I go into the store and I, I give them the money and I expect them to give me something. This right. Is not it. Nope. You had your hand. Even in Jesus' last agonizing moments on the cross, he was still more interested in doing it for others than himself. Like mm -hmm. his mother is more yeah. concerned about him than he was. Yeah. Frank? I was just going to say, based on what Richard was saying, it's a lot easier to do the to. It's a lot easier to follow the negatives than it is the positive. Mm -hmm. To not do certain things is not that big of a deal. But to do unto others. As you want them to do to you, it's very difficult. In fact, I would say it's almost impossible, and you need the strength of Christ. Mm -hmm. So the commandment it is impossible. itself drives us to Christ. Say, Lord, help me to do to others what I yeah. do to me, because I know my selfish ways it wouldn't be that way. Right. But the negatives, they're easy. You just don't do it. Don't do yeah. It. Yeah. And it's interesting too that when you look at the negatives, ungodly people do the negatives. Right. Whereas right. To do the positives is. That's why all these other religions were able to come up with the negatives. They just never got to the positive. The Bible says that uh, uh, persons who do evil are not happy unless they do evil to someone else. And that's all they think about, pretty much. Is that a, is it just sin? If that person were isolated, would they have lived the same life possibly? What, what made Man is a sinner no matter where he lives. Okay, he I is. He's. To the extent of, you know, all of us that are sinners, but we don't go around harming other people or doing evil things or think of that continuously. It must be a learned thing from being around people. Uh, it's learned from our fallen, corrupt, and sinful nature. We will do it. You can take someone, regardless of, because of their fallen, corrupt, sinful nature, they will, you know, that's that's one of my big problems with this whole concept of criminals learning their behavior as a product of their environment. No, they learn their behavior because they have a fallen, corrupt, sinful nature. It is their nature to do evil. It's just, and, it just, they just think that way. Right, they okay. think that way. I'd like to clarify something with that. Mm -hmm. They say they think that way. The reality is, is, if not for the grace of God, you and I would be just as we are. Just, yeah, we are. We would do everything that they do if not for the grace of God. So Absolutely. Here, but we look at people and say, look how wicked. I look at people and say, look how wicked. So that's me if not for God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and even then there are stages of it. As I was talking about the thing in Philippians, Timothy's the only guy who's reached a point in his sanctification where... Paul says, I can send him to you because he has your welfare at heart. These other guys are still thinking about themselves. Yeah. So it takes time. Yes, Barry. Well, maybe as simple as uh, goats and sheep. No, the goats and sheep are unbelievers and believers. Oh, these aren't believers that are yeah. dormant. No, believers who just haven't reached that point in their, okay. you know. No crowns. They're the, they're the 90 to 95% of the people sitting on the pews of Lakeside Community Chapel, including me. when you say that's their nature because for years I wasn't able to distinguish but our nature is our nature it's kind of like one of the examples I read was it doesn't matter how hungry a dog is if you put seeds in front of him he's not going to eat that right his nature right. is for something else that's why during the millennial kingdom that's why scripture says the lion will lay down with a <clears throat> lamb that's, that goes against the lion's nature has been changed. It is his nature to eat That's meat. What has to change it. Yeah. It's our nature. Yeah. It's our nature. Yeah. Well, let's start nibbling at the edge of verses 13 and 14. Because we come to the great crescendo, the climax of the entire Sermon on the Mount. Uh, this final appeal is stated in these two verses. The rest of the sermon to the end of the chapter is simply an extension, uh, an expansion, I should say, of these two verses, sort of filling in some of the details. So let's look at verses 13 and 14. 
says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. That is a provocative statement by Jesus. It really it is really the point towards which he has been driving in, in this sermon all the way up to this point. He brings the whole thing to a climax of a decision, a choice. Two gates that bring the individual to two roads which lead to two destinations that are populated by two different crowds. And Jesus then focuses on the inevitable decision that has to be made regarding that which he's been saying. Someone has well said that all of life concentrates on man at the crossroads. Uh, it's really true. From the time of our life, when we're old enough to make an independent decision or any decision, life becomes a matter of constant decision making. Uh, every single day of our lives, we make decisions about everything. Uh, we decide what time we'll get up or if we'll get up in the morning. Uh, we decide what we will wear, what we'll eat. We decide where we're going to go, what we're going to do. Many decisions are trivial and insignificant. Some are essential and life-changing. Life is a constant flow of decisions. We just pick roads all the way through life. So it's fair to say that life consists of man at the crossroads. Ultimately and inevitably, there is a final choice. <coughs> a choice that not only determines time, but a choice that determines eternity. That choice is the one to which Jesus speaks in these two verses, the ultimate choice. Now, it's always been, man, been God's effort to bring man to the making of that ultimate choice. There's always an option, there's always a choice, and that ultimate choice is the choice that God is most concerned about. For example, in Deuteronomy 30, God confronted the people of Israel through his prophet Moses and said this, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, the blessing and the curse. So choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. That's Deuteronomy 30, verse 19. God gave to the people of Israel the ultimate choice, life or death, blessing or cursing, and he called for a decision. Joshua followed Moses as the leader of the people of Israel in Joshua 24, 15. As they entered the promised land, he said this, If it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves today whom you will serve, whether the gods which your fathers served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Again, they were given a choice. In, Deut in Jeremiah 21.8, the prophet <coughs> heard God say, You shall also say to this people, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I have set before you the way of life and the way of death. When Elijah did battle with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, he called for a decision. In 1 Kings 18.21, he said to the crowd of onlookers, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. And if Baal, follow him. In John 6, we read that many followed Jesus and considered themselves to be his disciples. But when his teaching became too demanding, verse 66 says many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. They turned away from following him. So Jesus turns to the 12 and says, do you want to go too? And that's when Peter said those famous words, Lord, to whom will we go? Uh, you have the words of eternal life. We've believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Peter articulated his choice. Some walked away and some stayed. So from the very beginning, this is how it was intended to be. You remember when uh, Joseph and Mary presented Jesus at the temple as an eight-day-old infant to be circumcised? Simeon said, This child is appointed for the, rise, for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. Jesus is the crux of every man's destiny. The choice is made at the crossroads of Christ, if you will. Uh, choose life or choose death. Essentially, essentially is what Jesus is saying 
here in Matthew 7, 13 and 14. I know most, if not all of you, are very familiar with C.S. Lewis' famous statement about this matter of choosing to believe Christ or not. Let me remind you of it again. Uh, here's what he wrote in his book, Mere Christianity. <clears throat> he said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. End quote. So here in our text, Jesus confronts men with a decision. And he says that a choice must be made. One commentator says it's make up your mind time on the mountain. <laughs> now, there are two things you cannot do with the Sermon on the Mount. One is you cannot stand back and admire it as a great sermon in terms of its ethics. Jesus is not interested in that kind of a response. That's the viewpoint of the liberals. Uh, but Jesus is not interested in folks who just want to admire the virtues of the ethical statement of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus wants a, a decision about your destiny. There's a second thing you can't do with the Sermon on the Mount, and that is to push it into some prophetic tomorrow. Uh, there are those who teach that this sermon is presenting the ethics of the millennial kingdom, but not for us today. I don't think Jesus is suggesting that this is for some future era. Uh, the truths Jesus teaches here are truths whose essence God teaches in the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament. They are truths for God's people of every age. And the decision about the gate and the way has always been a now decision. What Jesus demanded was a choice, an act, an ultimate decision to be made at that time and at that moment on the basis of what he has just said. A deliberate choice had to be made. Christ came to bring a kingdom. He was and is the king of kings, and he came with a kingdom that was unique and special and separate and different from all the kingdoms of the world. And man would not understand his kingdom unless he articulated its principles. And so in this masterful sermon, he has articulated the principles of living in his kingdom. And now he gives us a choice to either enter it or stay out of it. That's the choice he wants every man to consider. He demands a response. And in essence, he says... You know, now know the qualifications of the kingdom. You now know the standards of the king. What is your response? What is your reaction? That's the issue. And that's why I believe verses 13 and 14 are the apex, the climax to which he has been moving throughout this entire sermon to bring people to bring us to the point of a response. And the choice is utterly clear cut. There are only two choices. There's the narrow gate and the wide gate. I mean, I'm sorry, there's the narrow way and the small with a small gate, and there is a broad way with a wide gate. That's it. There are no other alternatives. About this matter of only two choices, John Stott said this, Jesus cuts across our easygoing syncretism. Uh, you see, there, there are not many roads to heaven. <clears throat> Only one. Man cannot come to God in any of the ways that man himself has devised, but only in the one way that God himself has provided. Man wants an eclectic approach to a relationship with God and eternal life, and he expresses it <coughs> by developing all kinds of various systems of religion. But Jesus says, it's God's way or the highway. And that settles it. Now, some people might say, well, how 
in the world could Jesus make such a clear-cut issue about religion when there are so many different religious choices which man has? Well, actually, there's only two choices, the true and the false, the right and the wrong. In fact, all the way through the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is contrasting true religion, his standards, and false religion, man-made standards. The contrast is between divine righteousness and what it demands and human righteousness and what it demands. The contrast is between Christ and the scribes and the Pharisees. There are only two religions in the world, the true gospel of Jesus Christ and everything else which are false. Now let me add a footnote on that. I want you to understand this or you'll never understand this passage. This contrast is not between religion and paganism. You will hear people say, well, the narrow way is the way of Christianity that goes to heaven and the broad way is the paganism of all the false religions that are going to hell. <clears throat> no, it's not a contrast between godly Christianity and irreligious people, pagan people, openly lewd and lascivious, immoral masses on their merry way to hell. It's not that. It is a contrast between two kinds of religion, both of which are on roads marked, this is the way to heaven. Uh, Satan doesn't mark roads that say this is the way to hell. Uh, that's not very deceiving. Uh, it is not a contrast between religion and paganism. It's a contrast between righteousness and, uh, or it's not a contrast between righteousness and blatant unrighteousness. Rather, it is a contrast <clears throat> between divine righteousness and human righteousness. Between divine religion and human religion. Between true religion and false religion. The, the Pharisees' problem is indicated to us in Luke 18, 19, where it says that, says they were people who trusted in themselves that they were religious, that they were righteous. Uh, that was their religion. That was inadequate. Every person makes a choice, and the choice is this. Either you're good enough on your own or through your religious system to make it to heaven, or you're not. And you cast yourself on the mercy of God through Christ. Let me look where I'm at. I'm going to have to stop. But those are the only two religions in the world. There may be 10,000 different religions, names and terms in our world, but only two religions. The religion of divine accomplishment that God has done it all through Christ. And there's the religion of human achievement in which man does some of it himself. That's it. Any uh, questions or comments before we go? Okay. <clears throat> well, I started introducing this, and next week we will finish introducing it, and then we will move mm -hmm. on through it. So I don't guess there's any questions. As you can tell, my voice is failing. So 